Well, amen. We love featuring stories of foster care and adoption because there are few better living pictures of the gospel. Think about it. Before Christ, we were without a family. We were without a home. But we have been welcomed through him into our eternal home with our Father, and we've been welcomed into God our Father's life and love. And there are a few better pictures of love. Um, whenever Mark and Cherith are talking about how they opened up not only their house, but they opened up their hearts to the highs and to the lows, to the joys and the laughter, but also to the heartbreak and the difficulty. Because very likely every story of foster care and adoption begins with loss, begins with tragedy. And those children, just like we all do, bring that difficulty, bring that struggle, that heartbreak with them into their family. But what a picture of God's love that he comes alongside us just like Mark and Cherith did their children and walks alongside us through our struggles, through our difficulties, and welcomes them into their arms. So may their story become an encouragement to us, how maybe the Lord is, is working in us to show life and love to those around us. It may be a challenge because there is a big opportunity, greater need than there is supply of families who will welcome in children for foster care and even for adoption. Let's pray together. Father, we want to pray for Mark and Cherith. We want to pray that you would give them the joyful endurance of parenting. That even through the, the difficulties and, 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 and the heartaches and the struggles, Father, that they would be motivated to continue on to show your love. And Father, may their story challenge us. May it call us, call us up and in to show love to children that need our care. Father, move in this place, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're going to be finishing our sermon series, the book of Ruth. So we'll be in Ruth chapter 4. You can type to or turn to Ruth chapter 4. And as you're doing, I just want to say welcome. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's our joy to have you either in this room with us, out there in the lobby. I see you out in the lobby, online. We're so glad to have you. It is an opportunity for us to walk together through God's word here in Ruth 4 and to see what he has for us. As Pastor Kyle has reminded, this book, Ruth, in the Old Testament, is kind of like a Cinderella story of the Bible. It's a beautiful story of how God worked and walked with Naomi and Ruth from emptiness to fullness. From them being outsiders to being brought in as insiders. And from them being alone to being brought into a family. And it's a sweet promise to each of us that our God can work in and through our struggles in and through our hardship, even our loss and death to bring life. Because that's our main point today. One big point, our main picture, what we're going to be hitting over and over is that our God brings life through death. Our God brings life through death. Before we get going, something you may should know about me. I don't know why, but you know, here it is. I'm not a morning person. You people who are morning people out there, like, yeah, when the alarm clock hits, I don't even need a cup of coffee. Well, bless you. That's not me. Every morning is a struggle. And one morning in particular, whoo-wee, it was a struggle upon struggle, right? I think, first of all, I had lost my keys, couldn't find them. And something about that that just makes my blood boil. And I'm already late. I'm watching that clock tick up like, where are my keys? The kids are like hiding from me, right, because dad's on a rampage again. I finally find them. Maybe they're in my pocket or I'm holding my hands, whatever else. And then I'm just mad because I got to carry too much stuff out to my car. 
Like, why do I have all this stuff? I got my lunch, and then I got my books from the office, and my coffee, and I'm trying not to get it to spill. And then on top of it all, since I'm running late, got the bowl of oatmeal up there for breakfast, and I'm like trying to make it. And I get to my car, and I reach down to open the door handle, and I see it, but I can't do anything to stop it. The oatmeal has become a river of molten lava off the edge of that bowl down and just straight onto my arm. And I had the double indignity of one, it kind of hurt. Listen, it's oatmeal, I know, but still, it kind of hurt. But second, my shirt is ruined. I mean, it's stained. I'm already late to the meeting. Now I got a ruined shirt in the car, slam the door, throw my stuff down, and it hits me. What is that smell? My children have left me a present. Not that kind of present, but a present nonetheless. So I get out, I walk around, open the door, and there it is. What once had been a cup of nice, cool, refreshing milk has now become this putrid alien mucus science experiment in my back seat. So I reach down to pick it up, and when I do, I brace myself on kind of the the armrest of my kid's um, booster seat, brace myself, pick up the cup, and as I'm standing up, apparently the arms on the booster seat are breakaway arms. So when you apply pressure, they give way. And you know what happens whenever something is taken out from under you? What do you do? I jerk (laughs) with the cup and smack into my face, all down my shirt, all down into glory. The science experiment goes. You can't make it up. Worst start to the worst day. And I don't know if you can tell, but sometimes when things keep happening one after another, I get a little dramatic. But not only that, I get a little frustrated. And if we're honest, I get a little frustrated with God in the moment. I mean, I know it's silly, but it's the way it is. I'm like, where are my keys? Lord, why can't you just remind me where my keys are? It would not be that hard. And I get in the oatmeal spill, and I'm like, oh, why would you let the oatmeal spill? I'm already behind. And then finally, by the time the milk hits your face, you're like, where is God? <laughs> Maybe for you, retrospect, something silly like that, you're like, why did I get so frustrated? Maybe for you, it wasn't something silly. Maybe for you, it was a legitimate road of one thing after another after another, of hurt, of hangups, of heartache, of pain, of difficulty. Maybe for you, it was just that once, once phone call where everything in your life changed, when the rug is pulled out from under you. And our pain, our suffering, our heartache, our difficulty reveal about us that deep down we're all natural atheists. We're all natural atheists. The main point of atheism, I know it's a philosophical thing or whatever else, but at the core, at the heart of it, it has a problem with pain. Namely, God cannot coexist with our pain. It led one um, theologian I was listening to this week talk about, he said, you know, I wish there were more atheists around today. It's kind of funny um, point. What he means by that is just that main truth. God cannot coexist with our pain. That's fine and well, but it has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. It has nothing to do with the God we see in Jesus Christ. Because do we remember the characters of Scripture? Whether it be Joseph, whether it be Job, or Ruth, how he works in mighty ways in and through hardship? What about Jesus Christ our Lord? How his death is the very way into resurrection life. Because the message of the gospel, the message we see preached in Ruth, it's the same throughout. That our God brings life, and he brings it through death. Our God brings life, 
and he brings it through death. I love how Ruth is an encouraging example and illustration. Just life's hard. Life's tough. If you read the first chapters, maybe you've been there and you're like, man, I am there. And again, it's a great promise that our loss and our hardship is not the end of the line. If anything, our first point today is that our loss is an opportunity for love. That our loss is an opportunity for love. Do you remember Ruth chapter 1? Man, it starts out with a bang, doesn't it? We have a famine in the land. So Naomi and Ruth and their whole family, they lose their basest security, namely food, and they are devastated financially. Maybe you've been there. And then they flee from their homeland trying to find survival, trying to find food, and they lose their home. They lose their community. They are broken relationally. Maybe you are there. And then by the end of the chapter, you have all those things and three funerals. Everyone that Ruth and Naomi knows are dead and gone. And what we need to see this morning is that leaves them hopeless spiritually. Hopeless spiritually. It's not only a tragedy, but it is a unique threat to God's promise in the Old Testament. Do you remember how God promised to work leading up to Jesus? He said, the Messiah is coming, the Savior is coming. And leading up to that point, he was going to use the land and the lineage to work together to lead to the the Messiah. So that there was the promise that each family of God would have a place and would have a person in his purpose. What happens to Ruth and Naomi? When they lose their husbands, they lose their right to the land. They lose their right to have a place. And not only that, when they lose their husbands without a child, without an heir, they lose the lineage. They lose their opportunity to have a person. But God shows us that even in our deepest loss, as we see through Ruth and Naomi, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for love. And that's how he works about with the kinsman redeemer. That's a a role. That's a title. We see it come up in chapter 2 and especially here in chapter 4. That God made a way. It's a provision. It's a person, but it's a provision that in the case of loss, there would be the closest living male relative would step in. He'd step up and he'd say, no, your family is not going to lose your place. Not only that, your family is not going to lose. I'll have a person. I'll redeem the land and I'll come about to continue the line. It's God's provision. And what's interesting about chapter 4 here in Ruth is we actually see two redeemers, two men. We already know Boaz. We've met him, chapters 1 through 3, worthy man. But there's another guy. And what the Lord is doing here in the chapters, he's playing one off the other. He's showing us what it looks like to take the opportunity for love in Boaz, what it looks like to shrink back in selfishness at the other guy. So here in chapter 4, we see in verse 1, that in times of loss, we see through Boaz what love looks like. First characteristic of love is we see that love takes the initiative. Love takes the initiative. Verse 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Boaz literally got up, walked to a place. Talk about taking initiative. He places himself in a position to make stuff happen. 
That's what the gate, that's the significance of the gate. That's kind of like the courthouse, if you will, the ancient day. Where if you're going to do something, namely redeem land and redeem a person, then you're going to go to the courthouse, you're going to go to the gate. So he takes initiative to go to the gate, the end of verse 1, and behold, this other guy, the redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken before, he came by. So what does he do? He calls out to him. Gets in the place, looking for him, calls out to him. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And so he turned aside and sat down. Verse 2, he initiates the legal process. What does he do? Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, hey, sit down here. So they sat down. It's like convening court. It's like getting your witnesses, whatever else. He's making it it happen. Verse 3, I love this. He lays out the issue. He says to the redeemer, hey, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, did you know she's selling that parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech? Like, oh. In verse 4, man, he gets all up in his grill, calls him to response. Look at this. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. So if you'll redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. He calls his God to response. He takes initiative. But it begs the question, where's that other guy been? Boaz said he's the closest living male relative. Isn't it his responsibility? Isn't it his role to be the one that's stepping up, the one that's stepping in, the one that's taking initiative, the one that's redeeming that land, redeeming that family? It's been months, Kyle reminds, when Naomi and Ruth came back to the beginning of harvest to the end. And this guy has been nowhere to be found. Why? Because he does not show the way of love and take initiative, but he is passive. wonder why it is that we also don't take initiative. Thing is, because whenever we see the difficulty, we see the challenge before us, we're not really willing to take on that risk ourselves, maybe. We'll get to that in a second. I think probably more likely is that we are so full of ourselves, we can't see the need of others. I'll speak specifically to men here. Because God has designed us and called us to lead, which means to lead and to take responsibility. So guess where sin is going to hit us in God's calling? So we are designed to lead and take responsibility. It will uniquely be a temptation for men to be passive. I'm not a prophet, but maybe, just maybe, the issue in your marriage, men, is that your spouse is hurting, is lost, is lonely, and you don't even notice. Maybe your kid's disobedience that drives you up the wall, that embarrasses you in front of your friends. Maybe it's they are crying out for your attention because they need you to step up, to step in. Love takes the initiative. So I want to challenge each of us. Let's just set aside some simple thing to take time to create space for love. Just like Boaz, he went up to the gate, he took time, created space to make something happen, to provide for Ruth. May we take time to create space to provide and care for our families. It's the discipline of quality time. There's one pastor who said, you can't have quality time without quantity time. So if you want those times of quality with your kids, want those times of quality with your spouse, you have to have the discipline of quantity time, setting it aside. So maybe it's at the dinner table. Maybe we need to decide this week, sweetie, our family's going to eat around the table every night this week. 
Maybe it's a date night. Hey, if it kills us, we're going on a date by the end of this week. Maybe it's a date night with your children, right? Taking one or both, however. Maybe it's playing catch in the backyard. I don't know, but what is a simple way that you will take time to create space to show love? Love takes the initiative. The second thing we see is that love prioritizes the person. Love prioritizes the person. See, the Lord had been knitting Ruth and Boaz together. Boaz had heard of how she cared for her mother-in-law. He had seen her devotion unto the Lord, and he had seen her work ethic. And she, in turn, had experienced his kindness, his generosity, his love. And so in chapter 3, more or less, they're pledging themselves to each other. They're saying, you know what, better or worse, right? We're going we're to make this happen. In chapter 4, he's going to get his girl. That's why he goes up to the gate, because there's a legal process. He's not first in line. He has to go through the process. You can imagine, maybe it's disappointing to him, or maybe he worked it all out that way. But look how this other guy responds in verse 4. After he lays it all out and says, hey, are you going to redeem it? He says, I will redeem it. It's like, oh, that gum. I guess that's the end of the story, right? No, but the undertone in it is that this guy is a shrewd businessman. You see, he sees this as an opportunity for profit. Because he knows, wait a minute, no, Naomi, that's a pretty good piece of land. Oh, she's selling it at the redemption price? That's kind of like a foreclosure. It's like, yeah, I can get on that. Oh, and she's old, isn't she? So she's probably not having kids. So if I buy that land now for the low price, there's not going to be anybody down the line that I'm going to have to give it back to. So, man, this is a way to build out the portfolio, right? This is an opportunity for profit. What does Boaz remind? This isn't potential profit. This is about a person. Verse 5, look what he says. Oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. He says, hey, buddy, there's also Ruth, that young widow. More than that, there's her husband and his family name that you got to take care of. And then also there's that land. You got to keep it, and then you got to give it to it rightfully belongs to that family. The other guy doesn't want to get personal, does he? He wants the profit. So when he is introduced to all that responsibility, when he's introduced all that he has to give, cuts tail and he runs. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, Well, you know what? If that's what it takes, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So why don't you take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. That is not the way of love. Love prioritizes the person more than profit or pleasure. I'm reminded of Cherith in the video before the sermon. She says, you know what? We could walk away now and our lives would be much easier we would be in much more control. But no matter if the cost is high, love is willing to pay the price because it prioritizes the person. And that's what we see. The, the third thing about love, love is willing to lose. Love is willing to lose. I love how honest this other guy is. He just tells it right out why he cannot redeem the land. He's like, I can't do it. Verse six, lest I impair my own inheritance. Because he knows, remember, once Ruth is introduced in the equation, she's probably young enough to have a child. So if he spends money now, if he takes care of land for all that time, and she does have a kid within their marriage, he's going to have to give it all away to him. And that child may even 
grant access into his own estate, his own inheritance. And he says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it. He is beholden to his prophet. It reminds me of what Jesus says about um, how our love is who we serve. You cannot serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other. You know what he's talking about? Our Father, Heavenly Father, and money. This guy prioritizes profit, and so he walks away from the person. But Boaz is willing to lose. You see this? Verse 7 to 8. Boaz is willing to lose. No matter what it takes, he's stepping up, he's stepping in. Look at all he's taking on himself here. Excuse me, it's verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to all the elders and all the people, You are witnesses that this day I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses that day. That's supposed to hit you one after another. Boom, 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 boom. Like that's a lot of responsibility. You sure you want all that? Now you have a new estate to manage on top of your business. You have more mouths to feed and likely even more if Ruth has children. And then you got just that gener- the generations of hurt and pain, that legacy of fe- fear and failure from that family. You really want to tie yourself to that? But Boaz sees the situation not as an investor, but as a husband and a father. And he sees it not in terms of profit and loss, but in terms of love and legacy. He is willing to count the cost and pay the price, even if it means that he will lose. But the promise of the gospel is that even in our loss, if we lay it down, love leaves a legacy. So the last thing we see about love is that love leaves a legacy. Because here's the upside down reality of the gospel. Boaz, the one who is willing to lose his life, he ultimately finds it. Look at verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz's name is now renowned in his hometown. More than that, his family, this family he will create with Ruth, is considered among the great families of the history of God's people. Rachel, Leah, Judah, Tamar. Even, as Pastor Kyle reminded, the bronze pillar in the temple, the sign of strength and stability to all the nation, it was named Boaz. And as we'll see here at the end of the, this, this book, that he and their family will now be considered in the line of the Messiah. King David, more than that, Jesus Christ. He laid his life down. It's the Lord who picked it back up into a lasting legacy. But what about the other guy? It's remarkable at the beginning of the chapter, we don't hear his name. Boaz probably knows him, doesn't he? Small town. But he calls out to him and says, hey, friend, turn aside and sit down here. Uh, A pastor um, um, translated literally the Hebrew, and you know what it says? Hey, Mr. What's-His-Face. It's intentionally anonymous. 
It's like the author and the spirit inspired is saying, you see this guy who refuses responsibility, this guy who does not take the initiative, who does not prioritize a person, who does not lay it down, he is as good as forgotten. He sought to save himself. He sought to save his inheritance. And the very thing he sought to save, he lost it. He lost his legacy. Love is willing to lose. And in laying down our life, the Lord will pick it back up again in a lasting legacy. We all want to make a difference, don't we? We all want to leave a legacy. It hit me hard the other night. This is ridiculous. I know it is, but just, you know, full disclosure. I was watching back through the Marvel movies, you know, the, the superhero things. And I can't remember which one it is, and that's kind of the point, because they're all the same story, just different faces. Because it's like somebody who's somewhat special, maybe, kind of, becomes some superhero, right, that makes a super impact and leaves a lasting legacy. I can't remember. Maybe Captain America. It doesn't matter. But I was going to bed, and I was having trouble going to sleep. Something, something just hit me. I'm like, Lord, I want my life to make a difference. I want to give myself to something bigger. I want to leave an impact. I want to have a legacy. Maybe it doesn't come up for you when you're watching Marvel. It could show up in a number of places. Maybe you want to get into that school or that program so hard and so badly that it hurts. Maybe for you, you're kind of surprised at how jealous you get looking at your friends' experiences or their relationships on Instagram. Maybe you're kind of ashamed to admit how much time you spend daydreaming about that change in profession or that change in relationship. Or maybe you're a little ashamed to talk about how much money you actually spend living vicariously through your children or chasing your hobbies. Why do we do those things? Why does it hit us so deeply? The Bible gives us the answer. We were made for a purpose, to leave a legacy. And the Bible gives us the way. We leave a legacy by laying down our lives in love. By laying down our lives in love. So let me challenge you. Who close to you is going through a time of loss? Would you see it as your opportunity to step up, to step in, to take the initiative? Sure, it's gonna be awkward, but you gotta push past awkwardness. You gotta push past apathy. Step up, step in, prioritize the person, no matter what it's gonna cost you. Be willing to lose and see the Lord honor that love. Because love lays a legacy. And implicit in all this is a sweet promise that God brings life to each other. That God brings life to each other. There are some serious problems in the book of Ruth. And you know how God solves or fixes or works in each one of them? Through the lives of ordinary people, ordinary circumstances, everyday living. Think about it. Ruth and Naomi, they are starving the Lord can rain bread down from heaven. He has done so, but he provides through Boaz. Boaz is the way that they get food. Think about also, Ruth and Naomi, they have their access to the land and their access to the line cut off. The Lord could raise up from the stones, right? Children of Abraham. But what does he do? He uses Boaz, a man to, to take the initiative, to bond and love and to bring life through that marriage. That's what we see in verse 13. Sweet, happy ending. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
Not only the family piece, we'll get there in a second, but the profound truth that the Lord wants to bring life not only in you, but through you. The Lord wants to work not only in you, but through you to bring life to others. Because it's not just the life of this child, what a blessing that is, but look how the Lord uses it in verses 14 and 16. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is, is more to you than seven sons. She has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The Lord uses Ruth and Boaz, their marriage, their family, to bring Naomi full circle. Remember in chapter 1, she was empty, but now she is full. Remember in chapter 1, she said, don't call me, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I am bitter, but now through this child she is nourished. And where once she was living in death, she says, now I am restored to life. The Lord brought life to Naomi through each other. So may our families, may it begin there. May your marriage, either here and now, or your marriage to come, Point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the end of the book, isn't it? The end of the book in verse 17. Let's read it. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Wait a minute, I've heard of Jesse. Who was that? The father of David. The Lord brought life and purpose through that everyday relationship unto his great, glorious purpose of the gospel, King David. And what's the end of the story? Through Jesus Christ himself. Because God ultimately brings life through Christ. This is our story. How will we find life? Paul reminds us in Romans 11. From Christ, through him, and to him are all things. So if you are stuck in a land of death, if every day is harder to get up than the next one, if the road is longer and harder than you anticipated or expected or ever wanted for yourself, how will God bring life? In and through Jesus Christ. Christianity doesn't give us all answers by the suffering of death. You know what it does give us? A God who suffers for us on the cross and a God who now suffers with us as a great high priest by his spirit. If you are living in death, God will work in and through it to bring you life by Jesus Christ himself. And maybe if you are looking for life, the message of the gospel can tell you where to find it. God will bring life, but he brings it through death. He brings it through death. So what's the call? Will you lay your life down? No matter the cost to follow Jesus Christ. There's a pastor that talked about repentance like it's having a funeral for your old way of life. Taking how you have lived and putting it in the ground, sealing the casket, throwing dirt over it. That is no longer me. It is in the ground just as Jesus Christ's body was placed in the ground and, 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 and then the stone was rolled over the tomb. Yeah. 
but it's knowing that as we lay our life down, the Lord himself picks it up again by his spirit. So just as Christ walked out of the tomb to everlasting life, he will bring us with him into fullness of life now and forever. If you are living in death, God will bring life. He'll bring life through it in and with Jesus Christ. If you are looking for life, would you come home? Just like Naomi, would you come home and find it? And Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Let's pray together. Our Father, no matter where we come from, no matter what we bring with us, we are brought to the place to see clearly your glory in and through the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that he took the initiative. When we were living in death, he came and sought us out. He left the 99 to grab the one. We thank you that he laid his life down, that he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and humbled himself even to death on a cross so that he can welcome us into his legacy, so that by his poverty we may become rich. Lord, that Jesus Christ has taken what is ours, death and suffering, may we come to him that he can give us what is his, life and light in his name. We come to him today. In Christ's name, amen.